what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Spiritless supports the conscientious cocktailer who wants to live fully but drink differently. Their signature Kentucky 74 is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. It's zero alcohol zero guilt, and just 15 calories per serving. Whether you go completely spiritless or go halfsies with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail, you can get your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use promo code TODINEFOR to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast. I'm Kate Sullivan. Join me as we meet some of the world's most brilliant and fascinating minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Robert Passan, Chief Wagon Officer of Radio Flyer. We want them to feel like uh, this is the best job I've ever had in my life, and Mm -hmm. I love working here. One of the things that I always say to them is, I beg you not to take this job if you don't firmly believe that this could be the best job of your life. When you were a kid, did you ever have a little red wagon? Chances are you had a radio flyer. Robert Passon's grandfather created the iconic product more than 100 years ago in Chicago. He was an immigrant who came from nothing and built this incredible company. When Robert Passon inherited the company, he inherited a great product and a nostalgic story, but a company that wasn't growing and wasn't profitable. What he was able to do with this company and the company culture he created will blow you away. This is a master class on branding, storytelling, and most of all, creating a place people love to work. Fortune magazine named Radio Flyer one of the best places to work in America. Please enjoy my conversation with Chief Wagon Officer Robert Passan. Well, first of all, thank you for bringing me to Hemingway. Yeah. This is this so This is fun. our neighborhood joint. <laughs> and this is the quintessential neighborhood yeah. restaurant. I thought that's why you might like it. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. Owner and chef Chris Alla started Hemingway's more than 20 years ago. So right away, I fell in love with the place, and we decided to rent it, renovate it, and open up Hemingway's Bistro. It's very residential around here, so it's sort of tucked away, and it looks so cozy from outside. Absolutely. You're in the middle of the Frank Lloyd Wright Historic District here in Oak Park. 
We're a French-American bistro. We specialize in seafood. We try to use the Midwest ingredients the best we can while still following the practices of uh, French brasserie and bistro cooking. I grew up in New York on Long Island and loved seafood and grew up fishing and basically in my backyard and my dad and um, loved to fish, eat fish. Uh, when I was younger, I ended up moving down to the Virgin Islands where I went to college and um, ended up... You went to college in the Virgin St. Islands? St. Thomas, University oh. of the Virgin Islands. <laughs> You're a smart man. <laughs> and I uh, ended up, I was studying marine biology, but I was cooking in the hotels and working around the restaurants and decided that I enjoyed cooking more than what I was going to school for and uh, decided to become a chef. You know, and that's why we've been here for 19 years and this is our neighborhood. We, we don't really advertise. You, you have to hunt, hunt us down. Uh, we're in our little cocoon here and this neighborhood supports us and takes care of it. And, you know, we feel proud to be part of Oak Park community. What experience do you want people to have when they come in? I want them to feel like they're in Paris. I want them to step away from their everyday life and relax, have a glass of wine, look out the window and see the, the park down the street and, and feel like they're in Paris somewhere. My wife and I love coming here for lunch dates or dinner dates. We can walk here and it's this charming bistro feel and um, we always, my wife and I always say whenever we come here we feel like it's, we're on like a mini vacation. Aww. So uh, we just love it. And you have chosen the Cobb salad? I have chosen the Cobb salad. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very, very much. I'm going to push this over because I think we're each getting one. We could have shared one, but it's COVID and we're not going to share food. As we dive into our lunch at Hemingway's, Robert gives me the backstory of this iconic American brand. And it's a Chicago success story that many people don't really know. So how would you describe Radio Flyer and its inception here in Chicago? Yeah, well, my grandpa came here in 1917, and he was from a small town in northern Italy. And he grew up in a family of uh, carpenters. So his dad and grandpa were carpenters. Uh, but they were a working class, a poor family in Italy. So while my grandpa learned these uh, carpentry skills as a young boy, when he turned 16, he and his family decided he would come to America in search of a better life, like so many other immigrants. And uh, he ended up in Chicago because his cousin was living here. And he moved into a boarding house on the west side of Chicago, actually not far from where we're sitting right now. And he started working in any job he could find. So it was a lot of day labor work, like working on railroad crews and washing vegetables and carrying water for construction teams. Um, and he did that for a number of years until he was able to save up enough money to rent a garage also on the west side of Chicago. And in that garage, he was able to buy some equipment and start putting his carpentry skills to work making things out of wood. So some of the first things he made was furniture. Uh, he also made phonograph cabinets, those old Victrolas yeah. that you crank up and play records on. And, um, and then he made a wagon to haul tools around in his workshop. And pretty soon he was selling more wagons than anything else. And I guess today we would call that a pivot where he went <laughs> with, uh, but, but at that time he was just selling whatever he could sell. He was trying to find something that sticks, right? Like yes. he was just trying to create something and find something that sticks. And he came upon the wagon. And I read that during the Great Depression, he was selling 1,500 of these a day. Yeah, I mean, that, that came, that, yes, he did. He, he scaled up the wood wagon production. He called that first wagon the Liberty Coaster. Um, and one of the big breakthroughs prior to the Depression was when he was visiting an equipment supplier and he saw this metal stamping technology that was used by the auto industry. And he realized that he could apply that technology to his wood wagon to mass produce it, to stamp out wagons out of steel, lower the cost. And he shifted to that. 
And that's really when this iconic Little Red Wagon was born. And he named that wagon Radio Flyer. And everyone says, why, why Radio Flyer? It's this kind of strange, incongruous name. And it's because the radio and the airplane were the two coolest high-tech inventions of the day. And wow. he just thought they were cool buzzwords, <laughs> so he put them on the wagon. You know, I, one of the hard things about this podcast is you never get to eat. So feel free to keep in mind, you're not on camera. This is, know, it's not the TV I, show. I, I, you get to dive in. I, I mean, you're going to... I can eat at the end, right? Unless you want some sound no, of no, forks no, 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 going. No, 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 no. I'm just... If you don't, you, you don't have to eat. I'm just, no, I'm just encouraging you. you if you like, because I'm going to be eating and talking, Good. too. Good. You're um, probably, you have more practice than I do. Your grandfather at the World Fair here in Chicago made a decision to do something really innovative that uh, paid off. What did he do? Well, when my grandpa learned that the World World's Fair was coming to Chicago in 1933, he really saw it as this kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to promote his new invention, this red steel radio flyer wagon. And he learned that part of the fair was going to be called the Enchanted Island, which was kind of like the Disneyland part of the fair. And he wanted to build this exhibit to showcase this product. And um, but he had to do he had to build an exhibit that was really worthy of the fair because mm-hmm. these fairs were incredible, um, incredible events where people from all over the world would come, and companies like General Motors and Ford w- would build these huge pavilions and have you know assembly lines showing how cars are made and I mean they were amazing events and so he needed to build something like that so he had to take out a loan from the bank which was uh, very risky because it was the depression and years later my grandma told me it was the one time in, in her life that she saw him really stressed out like unable to sleep because he took out this loan and he was like am I crazy I'm building this big exhibit let's just stop for a second I mean it's 1933 <laughs> right yes you know, right after the Depression, people are really hurting, and your grandfather decides to to build this gigantic young boy on a radio flyer. Yes. Right? Yes. As a chance to kind of, almost like a, a modern-day billboard, yes. to get people excited about his invention and his creation. You can understand how really bold and adventurous of a spirit your grandfather must have had to do that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he... He had an, an, an amazing imagination, and when he imagined this exhibit of this boy riding this wagon, um, he decided to hire this really great designer, a, kind of a famous designer in Chicago at the time, uh, named Alfonso Ianelli, who did a lot of work with Frank Lloyd Wright and others. Fellow Italian. Fellow Italian, <laughs> yes. Uh, and he designed this Art Deco, very stylized exhibit that was really, really eye-catching and very iconic. And then... The, the, it was about 50 feet tall, um, and so it was this boy riding this giant wagon, and underneath the wagon there was a little shop where my grandpa set up this little miniature punch press line and uh, made miniature wagons that were about four inches long and sold them as souvenirs uh, for 25 cents. And so the sale of those souvenir wagons ended up paying off the loan for the exhibit. Uh, millions of people walked away from the fair with these little wagons that said Radio Flyer on them. Wow. So it was kind of this perfect... He bra- sold swag to pay <laughs> off his big billboard. He what did. a smart man. He did, yes. So that was a really huge milestone event in the company's history. Let's talk about when you start working there. You're, mm-hmm. you're, out of, you're coming out of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Um, you decide to work at your family's company. They were a very different company than they than they are now, and what you've done, and what you've been, your leadership has done. 
let's talk about what were, what they were like when you first started because mm-hmm. they were not consumer facing and they were not a brand per se mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of my one of my earliest memories, even going back to before I, I started after college, was when I was five years old when I went to work with my dad the first time. And I remember that day like it was yesterday because it was the first time I'd gone to work with my dad. I remember holding my dad's big hand and walking into the building and walking around the factory and hearing the loud sounds of the punch presses and the smell of paint and... and and then seeing all these shiny red wagons on the conveyor line, for me as a little kid, it was like this magical Rube Goldberg machine cranking out these shiny red wagons and sending them into the world. Wow. And so I fell in love with that at a very early age, just kind of the magic of transforming things like steel and paint and rubber into you know, delightful toys and the creative process of that. And I fell in love with my grandpa's story that I just told you. And, and so I had this very romanticized view of the business and I was I was just really in love with it so um, when I started kind of my first full-time job in 1992 at the age of 23 you know I was green and clueless and um, but I soon learned that the company was was struggling and um, and and why were they struggling well it was specifically I mean the first reason is just in any company that's been around as long as we have we've got ups and downs and there were a couple products that hadn't worked, um, a couple of missteps. And then we had, we got really punched in the gut where competitors came out with plastic wagons. And we weren't doing that. We viewed ourselves as a... They were ma- cheaper and less expensive and, and, and were able to, you know, people were buying those versus your wagons. Well, yeah. And it, it was really that they had a lot of features that our wagons couldn't have was mm-hmm. really the key thing. So they had things like cup holders and seats molded right. into them. And you know, moms were telling us, well, we love it because we can leave it out in the yard and just hose it off when the kids aren't using it. And um, But we weren't talking to moms. We weren't talking to consumers. We weren't doing market research. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm or your life, You can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to the table. And it's kind of like that old Winston Churchill quote, like, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, I was young. 
I didn't know what I was doing, but I got thrown into all these situations and had this incredible learning opportunity that I wouldn't have had anywhere else if it weren't our family business. So you saw opportunity in the midst of this crisis, and that was, hey, we are not maximizing what we have, and we have got to innovate. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we it just it allowed me to ask all of those questions that, you know, kind of the new kid would ask, like, well, why are we doing it this way? Have you thought of this? And it was much more fertile ground for, to receive those questions because we were in crisis. If everyone, everything's going great, it's hard to ask those questions. And one of the things that I found when starting to talk to consumers was that I would ask them about Radio Flyer and I'd ask them to say, well, you know, describe it to me. When you were a kid playing with it, what was it like? And these really amazing themes emerged, like, uh, well, you know, I was playing with someone I loved. I, my mom used to take me to the park with my wagon, or, and I could feel the sunshine on my face and the wind in my hair, and I could smell the cut, cut grass, and all these really strong, powerful emotions about playing outside and using your imagination and the fact that their wagon was a race car or a spaceship. And so we went from... articulating that you know we make wagons to we bring smiles and create warm memories that last a lifetime so let's stop you there because this is fascinating this is really the basics of how to build a brand what you're doing right now Mm -hmm. what you're explaining you went from you know the nuts and bolts of what you do to what kind of experience the consumer is having and how can you amplify that. Yes. Um, when, you, when it comes to creating a brand, because that's really what you have done it, with your intra- entree into um, Radio Flyer and your work as the chief wagon officer, <laughs> right, which is your title, which I love, um, would you say what you hang your hat on is the fact that you have created and crafted a brand that can sustain and endure well i inherited the brand so that was there that 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 raw material was there it just needed to really be amped up it Mm -hmm. needed to be polished up raised up amplified but the story needed to be told and at the point that point it hadn't been so how did you go about trying to a tell the story and b create the brand Mm -hmm. well first we had to change our own mindset within the company and we had to start thinking of ourselves as uh, and seeing ourselves through consumers' eyes. And, mm. and but that's when we changed to, you know, we're all about smiles and warm memories and outdoor play mm. and motion and wheels and imagination. And um, so once we were able to start keying into those themes, it started to unlock the potential for a lot of products we had never made before. Um, when talking with consumers and doing this kind of research and observing consumers, one of the things we found was really surprising was that uh, I would always ask just the open-ended question, tell me about your radio flyer. And of course, we'd get those wagon stories, but sometimes, and pretty frequently, consumers would say, well, I had a radio flyer tricycle. And I'd say, oh, wow, well, what did it look like? Well, it was red, it was shiny, it had chrome, it had a big bell, it had streamers, it was a radio flyer. But the crazy thing was we never made tricycles. That wasn't our product. Oh, it was somebody else's? <laughs> it was somebody else's tricycle, <laughs> and it was this very classic design. They couldn't remember the brand, but because Radio Flyer was, was this red. Class, red and this classic brand, they associated our brand with this product. And so we So did, did you start making tricycles? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> we were really, really smart, Kate. We started making tricycles. Um, and we gave we, But that would never have happened. Had you not listened to the consumer that they had associated you with something you didn't even create exactly exactly Mm. so 
Um, and so we came out with this tricycle that people imagined and people pointed to it and said, I, that, that's, my, that's the Rita Fire tricycle I had as a kid and it became a really popular seller. And then we realized- I have one, I own one. Okay, yeah, great. My, my three boys love it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. And then we just started coming out with other, you know, tricycles, scooters, really anything kids could ride on. And, um, and that's when we really started to, to grow a lot more. I think it's really interesting because when you talk about the emotions of some of the memories that your consumers had about Radio Flyer, you talk about universal emotions of childhood, right? Mm-hmm. Wonder and adventure and having fun with their family and the sun in their face and going to the park, right? How do you take those emotions and how do you put them into marketing? Give me the nuts and bolts of how mm-hmm. you actually bring that to life and into the consumer's mindset. Mm-hmm. Well, we've never done a lot of real traditional advertising like commercials and that kind of stuff. The main advertising we have done is word of mouth through our products. So our brand has been built you know, one product at a time, one consumer at a time, and then them telling their friends. Uh, but now, you know, we amplify that word of mouth with online advertising. And so we, all of our product videos and demo videos and, and photo shoots all have those themes. The, the, the blue sky, the green grass, the, the, you know, the really the best parts about playing outside and being a kid. Mm. You have been named one of the best workplaces in America. I'm wondering how do you get to that status and how do you create a culture where your employees love to work. I think one of the most important things about um, about having a great culture is is intentionally designing it. I mean, that mm. makes sound kind of obvious, but the first thing we had to do was decide we wanted to have that kind of culture. Um, and then we designed every part of that culture. So my team and I sat down and talked through how do we want people to behave here? How do we want people to feel when they walk into the building? You know, what kind of results do we want to get? And what is the answer to that? Well, we want them to feel like uh, this is the best job I've ever had in my life, and mm-hmm. I love working here. And when we interview people, um, we one of the I interview every person uh, at the later stages of, of the interview process, and one of the things that I always say to them is, I beg you not to take this job if you don't firmly believe that this could be the best job of your life. Wow. Um, because that is our goal. What goes into that? What do you find makes a job, you know, they can't all be the CEO, right? They can't mm-hmm. all be in positions of leadership, but what is at the core of making a job the best job someone's ever had? The, the most important thing I think is the match, you know, finding a great match between what someone loves to do and is great at doing and what we need done. So if we're hiring a designer to, to, to design new products, we want to hire somebody who's, of course, got all the technical skills of sketching and, and coming up with ideas. Uh, but we want somebody who's really, really passionate about developing awesome kids' products that can inspire active play. That's how we think of our products. Even the way you describe the concept of branding the concept of fleshing out and going from a company that creates wagons to a company that inspires children's play makes me want to work for the the latter, right? It makes me want, I mean, I want to be a part of that emotion, right? So it's not just about your consumers and getting them to buy your product as it is. I would think that's very integral to your culture. When you have, um, a goal like that that is so deep within us, it is aspirational and it, it sort of pulls you towards it. I would think that would be an advantage 
in recruiting yeah, and for keeping sure. great talent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we always start with what our purpose is, you know, and that that's our purpose to, to bring smiles and create warm memories. And we really mean it. And one of the things we find is that when people join the company uh, after a few weeks of working there, they'll say something along the lines of, you know, every person I tell I'm working at Radio Flyer, the first thing they do is smile, and the second thing they do is tell me a story. And it's always these wonderful stories about when I was a kid or being with my grandma or playing with your products. And and so that gives people a lot of intrinsic pride about working at the company. But I also think building a great culture, you know, the one of the things is, is um, parting ways with the people who shouldn't be on at the company. You know, that's something people don't like to maybe talk about as much, but... It's having zero tolerance for what we call bad behavior. And bad behavior is, of course, the really bad behavior, like harassment and those kind of things. But even like sarcasm, like we have zero tolerance for sarcasm because mm. sarcasm is, we believe, is veiled hostility um, and it kills creativity. Ooh, that's and good. So, um, so you know, we, we always really encourage people to be vulnerable to people to fail because we know we're in the products we're in the new products business so (laughs) nine out of ten new products fail i mean across the board so we have to have an environment that is really safe where people feel supported where we're all you know rowing on the uh, rowing the oars in the same direction Um, so those are some of the ways that i think we can maintain this great culture talking about failure i think you kind of teed this up when you look back at your time at radio flyer was there a major failure that happened that you are willing to share what you learned from it. There, I have a litany of failures <laughs> I could share with you. I think any anyone in business does, right? Anyone. Yes. And we talk about this. I mean, we we I have a I have a we call our learning and development program uh, at Radio Flyer Wagon U, of course. And um, and in my one of my intro classes when people join the company is basically my greatest hits of failures. Probably the most one of my more spectacular failures happened, you know, earlier in my career. But uh, we we I, I was in sales. That was my first job, and I would get all the random calls for, for people looking for things. Um, so I got a call from Kraft Foods, and Kraft was looking for a small wagon. Uh, about like the size of a piece of paper, if you can imagine the size of a wagon, uh, because they were going to buy a million of them for this promotion they were doing. And so they said, you have one? And I said, oh, yeah, we have one. And I hung up the phone and I ran downstairs to the shop and said, we need to build, make a wagon. We didn't have one, you know, but we quickly put, we quickly mocked up this prototype. And while Kraft didn't buy it, we ended up coming out with it anyway. And we ended up selling a million of these. And so it was my first hot product. I was just intoxicated by the success of this product, especially in the midst of all the struggle we were going through at that time. And we saw that people were putting dolls and stuffed animals in this wagon. And we were looking for any ways that we could grow at that point. So I said, you know, we should do our own doll in a wagon. Mm. And we got really excited about this idea. We came up with this whole backstory for this doll. And uh, but I was really worried that, you know, we don't know anything about dolls. Like, right. what if we make a mistake? So I hired a market research firm to focus group test the product. We got these amazing off the charts focus group test results. The moms loved it. We thought we were going to sell thousands of these things. And we came out with our doll, which was called Angel Love Wagon Babies. Have you ever heard of Angel Love Wagon Babies, the hit doll of the 1990s? No, you haven't, because it was a total failure. Um, what happened? It just it didn't it didn't connect. I mean, it, it yeah. didn't sell. We we came out with this commercial. We spent all this money on it. We had it in all these stores, and it totally failed. <laughs> and I was just like humiliated. I. 
so I, much for market research. Exactly. <laughs> and what I learned there, I learned so much from that experience because I learned that we made all kinds of classic mistakes. I mean, uh, there was all kinds of feedback along the way from our retail customers telling us what was not quite right with the doll from the doll buyer at Toys R Us and places like that. We learned that, you know, we had fallen victim to all kinds of these market research errors, like unconscious bias. Like we were looking for all the things to confirm the success and not looking for what would would tell us that it wouldn't be a success. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, and one of the, the key things I learned from that experience was that it's more important to watch what consumers do than listen to what they say they're going to do. Oh, interesting. And that's so, you know, feedback is is only good to some point. You have to look at what they're actually doing. Yes. And so we pretty much after that really reduced that type of research and instead just went into people's backyards, went into their garages and What are they buying? And what, what are, are they, they purchasing? Yeah, what, what are, are they, they doing? Love? Yeah, you know, it's, it's saying to a parent okay, take this wagon and put it in your trunk and just watching what happens. Is it easy? Is it difficult? What are they fumbling around with? What problems can we solve for the family? And these aren't, you know, these aren't life-threatening problems, right. but if we can solve a problem for a mom who's got a baby and a toddler trying to put a wagon in the back of the car and make that super easy, that will yield a great selling product. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Your grandfather really came over with nothing. I mean, he really had his name when he arrived in Chicago. And not only that immigrant work ethic, but the idea of coming from nothing fuels a certain type of person. And that becomes really their reason for being. You were in a different perspective. You inherited a company. Yeah. Where have you found your motivation? Where have you found your grit and work ethic that's been able to take the company and bring it to new heights? Mm Mm-hmm. I think two things. First of all, my love for Radio Flyer. I just absolutely love it, and it's my life's work. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, you know, I, you're right. I totally lucked out. I was born in the grandson of the guy who started Radio Flyer, so I didn't earn that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a huge sense of gratitude for that gift. And it's one of the things that really motivates me to take this gift and make it into something as great as I possibly can. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is, we drink from wells we did not dig. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. me, that's so true. And I think it's true for everyone. But it's, all, it's gratitude is a huge part of, of what I do. And, and I think I just love what I do. Mm. When you think of what's ahead for Radio Flyer, what is on your radar? What is the vision for the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I always say to the team right now, we have the best team we've ever had. We have the best product line. We're having the most success we've ever had. I mean, it's the most fun I've ever had. And, you know, I've been doing this for 28 years, and it just keeps getting better. So I feel like we're just going to keep on doing that. We're going to keep having our customers, follow our customers, learn from them, come out with great products that people love. You are in the wagon space and kind of the wagon tangential space. Did you ever have any aspirations of going beyond that or creating more different toys that have nothing to do with wagons? Yeah, I think as long I think as as long as it keys into the the core elements of what Radio Flyer means, you know, imagination, outdoor active play, um, I think anything is fair game. How would you describe your leadership style? Well, I've gotten a lot of, of 360 feedback and anonymous feedback, so I know what people think my leadership style is. And overall, it's pretty good, I think. But 
Um, you yeah. also hear the negative, right? <laughs> yeah, I think um, I'm I'm uh, I'm very uh, open. I'm very transparent, and um, I'm very enthusiastic, and I have very high standards. When uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are trying to create something on their own, whether it's their own business or a side hustle, what advice? would you give with your grandfather's history and then your decades of work with Radio Flyer to someone just starting out? Mm -hmm. I think whatever you do, you have to really, really love it because you will face so many challenges and so many difficulties that if you don't really love it, you'll give up. I mean, any sane person would. Why go through (laughs) the agony of it if you don't really love it? So I, I think that's the most important thing. Follow your passion. Yes. Yeah, and dig right in. Robert, this has been so enjoyable. Thank you for joining me at Hemingway's, bringing me here. And it's just fascinating to hear the Radio Flyer story. So thank you. Thank you, Kate. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefortwithkatesullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, and Spiritless. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. If you didn't do this, what do you think you'd be doing? Well, all my classmates from Notre Dame said they thought I'd run for office. office. Really? <laughs> I was really into student government when I was there. Oh, I read that. You were the student body president. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... So every, my, my roommates in Alumni Hall used to joke that the only reason I went to Mass was for the sign of peace so I could <laughs> shake people's hands. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.